Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 348, and I had a conversation with Daniel Hawkins. Daniel is an exceptional visual artist and musician. In 2017, he built a fully functioning 50-foot solar-powered lighthouse in the Mojave Desert after an extraordinary experience compelled him to do so. I met him at a show in Los Angeles featuring the Desert Lighthouse documentary and artists who have paid homage to the lighthouse. By the way, the 30-minute documentary on YouTube is linked on my heyhumanpodcast.com site, and it's an incredible watch. I highly recommend it. Side note, also at the show was Val Kilmer's work for his uh, Notes on Nature show, which was really cool. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links, Hey Human merch, and to learn more about my guests in the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. I'm making a film. I'm working on new music. Uh, You can find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get music. My most recent record, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, is there, along with How to Say Goodbye and other albums that I've made, Surfacing to Breathe. Uh, My sex and relationships talk show with my friend Mara Edelman, who's a sexologist and relationship coach, is on YouTube under youtube.com Are We There Yet? podcast show. And as usual, you can find me on social media under Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M. And you can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey Human is an ad-free show. Your donations help keep it going. You can find the contribute button on HeyHumanPodcast.com. And I think that's all the news I've got. Uh, Thank you for listening. Be well, take care of each other, be loving, and get outside and look up. There's a lot going on. (laughs) And no, that's not a commentary on the balloon. I just mean in general. (laughs) All right, let's get into this. Here we go. Daniel, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming over. Of course. I know. It's a bit of a haul, I guess, coming here. It's fun. I haven't been to the west side much since my time at UCLA, which I went there for my undergraduate art degree. And so the spot just down the street along the ocean, I probably haven't stood there since 2008, 2009. Oh, wow. Isn't it great? Oh, my. It's incredible. And it's strange that I'm 40 minutes away in Eagle Rock and the ocean doesn't exist to me. It's like completely off my radar. And here you come and you have the breeze and the smell and the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's it's been chilly. But now that the sun's starting to be more persistent, when you open all the windows, let the cross breezes go, it's the best. I bet. Yeah. yeah. And that smell, like there's something about that ocean smell. Yeah. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And so being surrounded by water all the time, you don't realize how much you miss it. Yep. So I spent the first time here in Los Feliz, oh, which fantastic. is great, yep. but very dusty and no ocean nearby. You know? And the summers get to be a bit warmer. So and, hot. Yeah. Let's talk about you. Where are sure. you from? I am from all over the place. I at, When people ask me that question, they'll say, Where, like, where's your hometown? I have no hometown. I, I, grew, I was born in Colorado, 
and then I moved to England. Three years near Bristol in a tiny town called Almondsbury, and then I moved to Northern California in south of San Francisco, and then I moved to Austin, Texas, and then eventually I found myself in Los Angeles, and I've been here close to 20 years. Family of... Technology. Okay. Yeah, so wandering kind of the corporate tech interesting landscape uh close family uh what do you mean your family am close? i close yeah is your family a close family it, we're pretty close yeah i think with the pandemic and like my brother has kids now i don't have kids mm-hmm. they the landscape of the family changes quite a bit and like the structure of it and so i'm a little bit more on the periphery now that i'm the the one kind of child without kids so, but we are close, yeah. And we've kind of had to be a pretty tight-knit group moving around so much. Yeah, I always wonder when, because you're an artist, yep. and when artists are raised by technology, it's a curious mix. Although well, technology is art in and of itself, but... What makes me more perplexed is when artists have artist kids. Because I find one of the things that drew me to art is the biggest thing is that my internal world often doesn't synchronize with my external world. Communities that I'm in, it's like everything's so square, everything's so like there's certain expectations of like how you fill your time and and what you explore with you know your resources that you have. And I'm always moving around so much, I'm have resorted to a much more imaginative like, oh, this is what I want my life to be. This is what I want my world to be. And so that, I think, just created a kind of internal creativity that then I've since tried to kind of... Foster. Yeah, cultivate. Pull out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. With my parents, my parents are pretty traditional. They kind of are much more of like a 50s revival family where like rather conservative traditional religious which is great like I have no problem with that but I kind of don't identify with that and so following in their footsteps never really kind of like rung true to me I think I never found that much excitement I think a lot of people can find excitement of like oh I'm gonna go work for this like big company and we have so much innovation and stuff and it's like no I want to cultivate these more bizarre kind of internal impulses and and narratives and imagine you know imagined worlds and so i always found myself very drawn away from my father's path my mother's path and my brothers in technology as well so away from my brother's path and so how did they react to that i think more and more they actually dislike it I mean, I think they're supportive very much, but um, I think they struggle to relate. And so thinking about, I know tons of artists with kids and kids that are, you know, in their 20s and they're pursuing the arts. And I kind of thought like, wow, like, do they not have the impulse to do something different and have their own world? And that might be being a lawyer or a doctor and like they're, they've existed in this kind of Los Angeles creative space for so long and I would almost find myself had I been raised in LA or New York among like a creative bohemia I probably would have gone into like politics or law or something as a way to kind of break free and create almost like a new 
life different from what I was raised. I think it depends on how the world is modeled to you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that makes all the difference. And whether you want to kind of perpetuate that model or break from it. Without even, it might even be subconscious yeah. of, of, in that too. And are you, where are you in the birth order? I'm the youngest. Ah, and that also makes a difference. Probably. There's a freedom to being the youngest. Yes. Yeah, By the, the time we come to... along, they're exhausted. <laughs> they are, just yes. stop worrying so much. Are you the youngest as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I experienced that quite acutely, is that my brother, I feel bad for him. He had to... Expectations. Yes, and everything the first time around. And it, it does make sense that he's very much fo- uh, following in my father's footsteps and has the family, two kids, just like, you know, what I came from. And uh, and so he, he he's carrying a different burden, so thank him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very grateful to him. For sure. Yeah. How old were you when you started to realize you had artistic talent? That was more in the high school range. Um, moving around, particularly the time in Europe. And I was quite young. I was, I think, between like five and eight. But we would, we would travel all around. And so we would travel through like Transylvania area, you know, and like Hungary and all these places. Mm. And there's so much history and folklore. And so that's like so rich for a child's imagination. And then moving from England to Northern California, I didn't know the difference between like Los Angeles and the Bay Area. I just thought all the movies happen in California and it's the... American West and you know there's so much history and uh, someone once described to me a professor in college said that the thing about California and generally the West is it's the landscape of our country's cultural imagination which I really like that sentiment and I feel like that's kind of rung true for me which is for so much time in our society out here in California there's been so much projected potential and then you have the movie industry and stuff so i think moving from england to california was so exciting and the bands and the movies and the music and i think that's when my imagination really kind of took off Mm. and then i moved from northern california to austin texas for high school which I wasn't as thrilled about because I kind of thought like, "Ah, I've been to Austin, I don't know. And I wasn't as versed in the music industry there. But that's where I think my world kind of turned inward and I I was a bit more socially shy. And then that's when a lot of drawing began. That's when painting began. And I had some really wonderful art teachers that kind of helped cultivate and Mm. and encourage and that's a tough time to change schools too very tough i mean adolescence alone is a nightmare yes yeah i i did not take to that well and it was a time period so i moved to austin texas in um i forget the exact date but in 2000 and so i was kind of early adolescence already not happy about a a, kind of a, a big change in my environment, in my friends, in the landscape around me. And then 9-11 happened. And that was a huge kind of rupture. And that kind of really kind of 
changed my psyche quite a bit as so many people my age and younger and older. And I would kind of come to realize later that like my work and my thoughts in general tend to steer pretty existential and uh, definitely I have a lot of like fears and like in like kind of feeling like the world's like a very dangerous churning place and I, I think that time period really kind of like defined that and and like thematically I can't help it it's like every project that I work on seems to have like a landscape element and like a giant existential question of where I exist in the landscape and you know where I'm going to am I untethered where's my community, all that kind of stuff. When you work on projects now, do you see the lineage of where you began in that period of time when you when you started having the realization that you're this being on a planet that is tumultuous and has so many issues? I mean, did you see the beauty too? Is, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did you? Is there a lineage that is threadable from then to now, or do you think that each time you make a leap? It's no. It's it's like a complete through line. And that's like an interesting thing because sometimes I want like, can I just turn a completely fresh page? And but then I, I see like, even if I'm amidst a project and I didn't see the lineage right at the start, as soon as I start kind of looking over things that are manifesting, I realize, oh, like I haven't escaped this theme. I haven't escaped that theme. This all kind of traces back. And this is probably going to be the like overarching story of my creative life through however long I get to have it for. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's interesting, too, to think about the West being the cultural hotbed versus even New York. But then I think about New York as a a land of first-generation Americans, a land of immigrants who just put their heads down, worked hard, and to be an artist would be unheard of in a family who just got there to break their ass to make sure that they thrive. Absolutely. There wouldn't be the freedom for a child of a first generation, probably. I can't imagine. It would be quite difficult. The few that probably did do that, they were, I imagine, massive outliers. I think if I had been uh, the older child or a middle child, I think the opportunities to kind of branch off might not have been there. And someone can kind of forge their way and they can kind of break from their family. But like, I do think people overestimate their abilities to like turn their back on expectation and everything. And, and when, when you're the youngest, it's kind of like, all right, well, you know, we're, we've, we're set. We've, we've, the first one has survived or the second one has survived. And, and you now, become a spare and exactly. to eloquently say And you kind of get, you're like working a little bit under the radar. Yeah, I so, agree. But I, there is a, I mean, there is a interesting kind of lineage of um, less so like um, poor working class immigrants from Europe. Um, but there is, there is a lineage of artists from Europe flocking to New York, which was. But they brought that yeah. with them. They often brought that with them. Yeah. They often came from some degree mm-hmm. of wealth, which is a whole other conversation about arts and wealth, Absolutely. which is often there is behind the doors some 
family support. Oh, it's rife in the music industry. I'm sure yeah. it's rife in the art community, of yeah. which I know much less about, but certainly well, one money helps. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and be an artist. Some of the like, most famous 60s musicians that we know, there's so many interesting backstories. And I didn't know this till a few years ago. It may be as longer than that, but uh, I didn't know Jim Morrison, kind of the ultimate druggy bohemian guy uh, that, you know, really kind of made his mark in Venice around here is that his dad was a high ranking, I think Admiral in the U S military. And it, you just kind of think like, he was probably a youngest child <laughs> and, and, and like how people kind of cultivate their identities and their stories. Right. We're all, we're all mythologies. All yeah. of us. We, we all have to decide who we are and what we are, even within our own families. Yep. The mythology of what a first child is supposed to be. For sure. And you just wear that that coat and put on that face and good good luck. Get through oh, it. God. Yeah. Did you believe in God growing up? And do you still? Is there a faith in your I work? I did and I do. And it's like my relationship to faith is kind of seems to be continuously in flux. Like I have faith. I was raised in kind of practicing religion most of my youth and young adult life. And I've stepped away from that. So I was raised in Christianity and uh, Methodist. So like generally kind of non-denominational. I bristle at at uh, what I kind of something, this is gonna be dramatic, but like dogma. And I like, I really have not felt at home kind of within a church. But I do carry faith and like I do resort to prayer and like sometimes, um, you know, my kind of concept of God is more of like a kind of a broader like kind of cosmic consciousness. Um, whereas like I feel like when I was raised, it was much more of like a guy a, in a chair. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> I, do, I do turn to kind of religion and and given the like existential nature of you know say my project the desert lighthouse that's found a, a kind of a strange interesting relationship to religion where p some people approach it through art history and there's uh famously in the 60s land artworks where often it was artworks made in the landscape from the landscape so there is you know augmentation of the landscape like uh, trenches would be dug out in particular shapes a famous one is michael heiser's double negative where there's a canyon and bridging the canyon he created these two giant kind of gashes that were are i don't know the exact scale but they're a few hundred feet long and then uh, probably about like 25 feet wide and um and so literally the entire artwork is of the landscape um, and the lighthouse is slightly different, but uh, it is a lighthouse that has been displaced into a desert and it's very much the, the kind of art is created from that displacement and kind of the anomaly of this kind of futuristic lighthouse structure existing in the desert. So that's one entry point, but the symbology of a lighthouse in the desert has huge roots in Christian religion and has been argued most 
religions. I was going to say Muslim religion as well. Exactly. Yeah, sure. And um, and one thing that's been very strange, and we can kind of get to this on the back end uh, uh, in our conversation, but one of the most unexpected things that happened in my entire creative practice, but for that Desert Lighthouse project, is that about a year and a half into its existence, it had been put up, I was visiting and I noticed what looked like kind of debris nearby. And so I wandered over and I was wandering over, as I was wandering over, it was a white cross in the ground and some tassel and and then uh, some hand-painted little signs and a makeshift memorial had been placed there. And later I met the family that of the young woman who passed away, not at the lighthouse, but nearby in Barstow. And it's grown a bit. And then of course the elements have since kind of eroded it some, but they saw the spiritual symbology of the lighthouse. And when their 34 year old daughter passed away, they spread her ashes there and created a memorial and I guess they lived close enough where they could look out at the lighthouse. And mm. the mother said, you know, when we look out there, we know that she's there. And so people kind of are engaging it completely outside the art historical context, completely outside, quote unquote, the creative landscape. And these are just people living their lives and in faced with life and death and particularly death and mourning had this connection and um, on another visit out there, I was doing some kind of emergency repairs and a man and a younger kind of like teenage aged boy came up on ATVs. And at this point, someone had tried to break into the structure. And so I was concerned, like, you know, are they friendly? Are they not friendly? Are they going to rob us? What's going on? And it was the pastor of the local church. And so for listeners, uh, the Desert Lighthouse is a 50-foot tall, fully functioning lighthouse in the Mojave Desert. It kind of has a uh, futuristic look to it. It's made out of steel and polycarbonate, which is a type of plastic, and the structure is frosted, and there's internal lights throughout the structure. So at night, the entire structure glows like a spaceship, It's basically. quite something. Well, thank you. And... Um, and it's located on the outskirts of a town called Hinkley, California. And most people recognize Hinkley, California from the Erin Brockovich story. And uh, if you're not familiar with Erin Brockovich, she was, I think, a paralegal assistant in the early 1990s. And she basically stumbled upon a high incidence of uh, cancers among the residents of Hinkley, California. Later, as discovered, PG&E had unlined water pools in the ground that they were pumping toxic chemicals into. It was seeping into the water table, and locals who use wells basically were getting mm -hmm. severe cancers. The town is decimated. A few people still live there. There is uh, Most people have left. PG&E has bought most of the land. There is some kind of old timers that stick around. Uh, there's some drug people. Um, there was a recent incident of 
illegal marijuana farms out there because it's a true kind of Mad Max. Like, I hate to call it a wasteland because I don't want to talk kind of poorly because it's a beautiful landscape and every person uh, that I've met there has been amazing. But it's a very, like, desolate It's bleak. Place, very bleak. And so... Uh, one of the there's basically two things that still exist in Hinckley is a bar, um, and and a church, and uh, <laughs> they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. <laughs> Every place I've ever seen. <laughs> so I met the pastor of this church, and he told me that he came up because he thought we were breaking in, and he, at the time, I don't think he's uh, still the pastor there. I think it's a, a older gentleman now, but that he would try to keep an eye out for the lighthouse oh. because him and his, uh, his parishioners saw the religious symbology and appreciated it as a quote unquote beacon of hope for the town. And, um, and that prior to the lighthouse's existence on this particular hill, which unbeknownst to me, uh, there was a history of that church going up on the hill to make prayers and so they actually had nicknamed it Prayer Hill. And so it's already sanctified. Yes. And so there's there's somewhat of an aversion within the contemporary art world to embrace religion. And it's just one of those things where obviously there's a complicated history to many organized religions. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing about the parent, the child breaking away from the parent, because historically art was an homage to God and to yes. the, the priests and to the uh, saints and all of that. Yep. So and it, it would was, make sense that there would be a breakaway. F- absolutely. And, you know, modernism, I think, was in the most kind of uh, dramatic sense was a breakaway from, you know, th- there was a lot between when the Roman Catholic Church primarily was the leading patron of art and obviously there's a big history between mm-hmm. then and then the earliest stages of modernism, but it was like the true, uh, yeah. you know, rupture. What I wouldn't give for a Roman patron right now. Oh my God. Yeah. The Medici's. <laughs> I know. I know. I, oh, yeah. And they're, they're out there. There's, uh, but it's, um, so many artists are actually pretty private about their, religious affiliations and there's some major artists that you know if you're close with them if you're friends with them they share but it's kind of a a little bit taboo and then certainly within the narrative of an artwork it's often really kind of you you want to not have that cross-pollination i think for some people and i have been open to it i think from my own spirituality and also, like, the moment when I saw that memorial at the lighthouse, I realized there's something happening with this project that is bigger than me and my intentions, and I have to, like, embrace that. Well, I also think human beings are in constant desire to see something bigger and something outside of themselves just to make sense of it all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit like the gods must be crazy. You dropped a giant Coke bottle in the middle of the desert, and the people around it went, God. Well, and some 
literally said UFOs and, and yeah, that's, that's that was, the whole other thing. Yeah. So when the night that we met at yeah. your uh, pre-party show, there was a documentary that you made that was showing. Yes. And my friend Andrea stood and watched much of it, and I we kept looking at each other like, "Gee, this is an incredible story." Your how and I'm gonna make you. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna ask you to tell the story of what inspired the the tower or the lighthouse. Uh, but to see all the cast of characters who were coming up with reasons of, oh, well, alien technology, or, oh, there's a UFO out there, or, oh, it's a religious cult, or, you know, all these different things. And it just goes to show you how much we look out yeah. to find an answer. Yeah. Whether or not we realize we're even doing it, whether or not we even call it God or science or whatever it is, aliens and science sort of together because it's technological. In well, it's my like mind. science and then science fiction. fiction and but it's sort of this, cross, yeah, yep. yeah, crossover. So let's tell the story of how this even transpired. For sure. So the conception of the lighthouse occurred while I was doing a cross country drive. Um, there's kind of like a little bit of a backstory to that that's not totally relevant, but. Um, I had started my time at UCLA, so I was becoming much more invested in the arts, contemporary art. But I found myself stuck in Colorado during a giant winter storm, and the airport was closed for two weeks. So the only option was to drive back to California. And for a lot of reasons, it was important to get back for seeing family. There was kind of some like time issues. Anyway, on this journey which was essentially a 21-hour nonstop drive. Which makes you hypnagogic. Exactly. And, like, I I don't really know exactly kind of how to perfectly describe my experience. I call it uh, that I had a sleep deprivation-induced hallucination. But it could have just... There's a lot of things that it could have been. It could have been just kind of hypnosis from that much driving. Uh Basically, I kind of had these visions, and it's it's one of the really only times in my life that I can describe having like a like vision where I'm like I feel like I'm seeing something, and it was driving through Nevada in the middle of the night after having been on the road for probably about 15 hours plus, and you're just in the absolute emptiness of emptiness that you can experience probably without being it was nighttime it was nighttime so pitch black you're in like a true void obviously uh i could look back but obviously it was not a full moon because in a full moon you'd be able to very much see the landscape and so all you got was the little bit of stretch of road in front of you and in that experience uh basically i had like uh, an agoraphobic anxiety attack, which I'm not a doctor, but essentially agoraphobia is a fear of vast spaces and being overwhelmed that I've heard it described in different terms as situational claustrophobia, which is you're in a situation, you're very uncomfortable and you can't get out of it. And when you're in a vast space, agoraphobics often feel a similar panic to someone that might feel if they're trapped in a small closet. Isn't that ironic? Isn't it? Yeah, it's extremely ironic. And so um, in that experience, uh, basically heightened panic, 
extreme tiredness, the hypnosis of, of a road trip, I basically saw this kind of shape on the horizon. And I interpreted that as a lighthouse. Um, but it was, it was a little bit more abstract in my experience. Uh, but I saw this shape and then I had some other visions that later become, became artworks. Um, and one of which the project is, uh, is a project I'm going to start shortly. But anyway, I had this vision of this light that was hovering on an imagined horizon because I couldn't see the horizon. It was pure blackness for a couple hours. And, and eventually I got back to Los Angeles and so touched by this experience and how I interpret what I went through was I was lost in a void, untethered from society, alone, without any point of connection and kind of in, in my kind of anxious state were real questions of will I be lost forever? And will I ever kind of find my way back? And so I was really kind of touched emotionally by the experience, but conceptually I thought, oh, this is very interesting. This is like, I liked the themes that it brought up of as being lost in a, a void. Um, did you hear any voices? I did not, no. Um, and I've never had any type of auditory experience mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so I basically thought like, I need to make this. I need to make the, as a sculpture, as an artwork, the closest thing to what I experienced, that being a lighthouse in this desert space. And that I'm probably not alone. What I felt is that I experienced something that is probably somewhat universal, although I may be more prone to panic and anxiety, but generally I could imagine that many people in a, a desert void at night would feel kind of an existential, like, gosh, this is, like, we're really out here. We're really kind of alone. And that introducing a lighthouse into that space would bring kind of this religious experience, this emotional experience, this existential experience. And so that's where it all began. And Did I, people think you were insane to say, I'm going to go buy a plot of land in the middle of the Mojave? Well, I was operating <laughs> largely kind of underground. So it took me 10 years from that experience to when the lighthouse existed. And so much happened in between. I completed, I returned to UCLA and completed my degree. Um, I made other artworks. And... Eventually, I became, as soon as I graduated, I thought, like, this is the time I, like, really need to make this artwork. I felt like this is much more like a calling than just a, a career or an endeavor. And so I applied for grants. And I, I was emailing so many people for support. And a lot of people just would not reply. I mean, as, as most people in the creative field, when you have a project and you're trying to get other individuals to support it or institutions, you get a lot of non-responses. 
skepticism, people having a hard time understanding what your vision is and how it places Mm -hmm. in the cultural landscape and why they should support it. So I was receiving all of that and uh, of just really having a hard time getting other people on board in which I needed because how the hell am I supposed to build a giant lighthouse in the desert? Yeah, I mean, I know you described it, but honestly, listeners, it is epically large. It's It's, bonkers big. It's a five-story building. Yeah, it's, it's, I would say, unbelievable if I hadn't seen it. It... Um, and I'll, I'll get back to my story, but I believe it was around 2018, I was out doing repairs and the lighthouse had existed for a year. I'd spent 10 years making it and there's some nearby hills that you can get on top of. And one of them is actually slightly taller than the hill that the lighthouse stands on. And so you're actually looking a little bit down on it and It was just past sunset, so we're kind of in that last light space where you can still see just the the, like kind of the purplish glow of the remaining light. And the lighthouse lighthouse was fully illuminated. And there was a moment where I kind of thought, this is like a spaceship that has landed from another planet. And I'm the one who made it. And I know all the, I have all the blueprints I went through so much. And even having had that intimate relationship with knowing how it was made, because you know how people often will say, oh, I've seen behind the curtain and the magic of something is lost. Like even in that experience, having been behind the curtain with this for 10 years, it's still, it still had that yeah. experience. And I was very grateful for that. But going back to how this all started is that eventually I I started emailing people with, I would first kind of sanitize the project and say, oh, you know, that's, I would basically say it's a smaller structure. So originally it was going to be 20 feet. And just because I figured I, I didn't want to be intimidating to people, I would get them on board and then I might scale it up. And I kind of just started giving up and I was just like, all right, if I'm going to email people, I'm just going to go full bore and tell them the whole vision, exactly how large I want it and everything. And eventually an organization called the the Center for Land Use Interpretation uh, emailed me back. And just a little bit of a caveat about them is they're a creative arts organization that is interested in kind of the anthropological relationship between human intervention in the landscape. So they'll do exhibitions on um, they did one exhibition on the Interstate 5 route through the Grapevine, um, which is, uh, I think, kind of the nickname for the Interstate 5 that passes through the mountains north of Los Angeles into the Central Valley of uh, California, and it's a major thoroughfare. But there's so much history, and it's such an important kind of human intervention in the landscape that shapes a lot of Southern California as its supplier and all that kind of stuff. So they emailed me back. They're one of the people I emailed and they emailed me back right away after I sent the email and they said, sounds great. Meet us out in the desert tomorrow. We can help look at spaces, plots of land for you. And I just, I completely panicked. I completely panicked where I thought, 
oh, like I had wanted to do this thing, but I was completely unprepared to actually make it. And here's someone who just said, let's do it. And so I went out the next day and met with them quite nervously because I kind of felt like I got called on. Like I was almost like giving up on really believing I was ever going to make it. And they're taking me around in an off-road vehicle all around the Hinkley area, which they have a small facility near there, introducing me to kind of different spots that it could be made. About a year passes after this visit, and none of the locations they could provide would make sense. There were some issues with it being permanent. And eventually, I asked them to write a letter of support for a grant. And they did, and I received the grant. And from there, I bought a piece of land, which was essentially a small hill in the area. And it's in view of Interstate 15, which is the other major thoroughfare coming in and out of Southern California. And that really got the project rolling of, okay, I own land and now it's it basically started to like break it down into small steps. Now and you have to call your own bluff. I know exactly. And then it was like, oh, <laughs> a number of years passed from that point, and I was invited to do an exhibition at UC Riverside about the lighthouse. And I called the exhibition Desert Lighthouse Ultimatum, and the essential premise was everybody get on board or else. And it was including kind of yourself. yeah, and including myself. And it was kind of tongue, tongue in cheek. And the book I brought today for you uh, was made for that exhibition, and it was called Desert Lighthouse Prospectus. And it's a satirical prospectus about like why you should invest in this project. And there's a bunch of essays from different people. And um, that exhibition, uh, in that exhibition, I built what. I didn't end up using it for the actual lighthouse, but I built the top 13 feet of the lighthouse in, in much more of kind of like a, a pared down non-structural, that, yeah, that image. Um, it looks like um, the top of the space shuttle or the part that gets knocked off. Yes, of. like the capsule. The that capsule, yeah, yeah. Comes off. And, and that exhibition completely galvanized the project because a friend of mine who's a filmmaker, he saw the exhibition and said we should really if you do this i'll make a documentary and that was enough where i said okay and so i contacted a engineer i had blueprints made and it just once the blueprints were made all of a sudden i realized like oh this actually might be a whole lot easier than i ever imagined because the blueprints it was like it's a tube (laughs) Yeah, and it, it like it, in blueprints. It's a big ass tube. Yeah, and like the structure what is straightforward enough, like you're saying, that having engineered blueprints for it was not particularly expensive. And once I had blueprints, I could submit them for permit application, which a lot of people tease me about. But this, the lighthouse is fully permitted. And there was a couple reasons why I did that and why it was important to me. One, I wanted to last as long as possible. And two, I only had enough resources to make it and I didn't have any money left over if I had to remove it. 
And so it was important that it not be forced to be removed. And uh, and once that, once eventually it was quite difficult getting approval to build a lighthouse in the desert. And there were a lot of people kind of smirking and they, they the planners for San Bernardino County, I think had quite a bit of fun with like, all right, this is like completely wacky. And uh, most of the classifications of how they permitted it was um, kind of through the cell tower uh, allowances. It's not it's not designated as a cell tower, but structurally, that's kind of what their closest association was. It doesn't have that as a functionality. Though. It does not. No, it kind of became this strange bureaucratic odyssey in which I would hmm. submit documents, and it, it it like it was the opposite of the romantic experience that I had. And there is going to be an upcoming book called The Bureaucracy of the Light, and it's going to be about that strange bureaucratic journey of like relentless amounts of paperwork and photometric studies and soil samples and and revisions of blueprints and and public hearings and all of that so i want you to make a book i told you that this that night that we met of all there's so many artists that have gone out and then done their own artworks on your lighthouse yes that was a really stunning part of your exhibition was to see how you have inspired so many with that one work and all the I just thought that that would make a cool book. Well, that will be. It'll be a much smaller book, but that's also in the works. Good. The show that I saw, yep. you were in a in a double show with Val Kilmer's work. Yes. How did that intersection happen? Yes. So it's kind of a strange story. My exhibition, Desert Lighthouse Five. And uh, Val had an exhibition called Some Notes on Nature. And I do not know Val, but I am somewhat in his creative community. Um, you know, we know Stephen Meyer, and he's a great individual. And Argot and Sarah Beadle, I don't know, yeah. you may know. And, and uh, oh my God, Brad. And Brad. Um, and so... Uh, a long time ago, I attempted to make Radical Mountain, which I've barely talked about in this podcast, and it was a disaster. So the culmination, I've made sculptures related to this Radical Mountain project, but the culmination is going to be a landscape-art film-kind of action-adventure film. So it's going to be a film, a feature film, and which is kind of a strange format because it's kind of a like land artwork um but i'd attempted to make it and it did not go well and amidst that first time approaching that project uh i had a kind of a mentor and friend i have a mentor and friend named doug harvey and he's an artist and a writer and kind of a brilliant mind and he had encouraged me, oh, you need you need someone really cool in this film if you're going to make it. And so um, Eddie Furlong came up as like, oh, a really like eccentric type. Uh, and then I was like, Val Kilmer. And so there was kind of this running joke of, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to like I'm going to get Val in, the, in my in my film. And so one night Doug emailed me and he said, I have the phone number of 
like some guy that worked on a film with Val Kilmer and it's probably out of date, but here's the phone number. And so he said, just film when you call it, like document everything. And so of course I did that and called it and he was pranking me. It was, it was a, like, um, this is before grinder and before kind of, you know, dating apps. And it was a, uh, phone number from LA weekly's like mail to mail hookup phone lines. And of course I call it immediately. I realized what happened, but I play along and I, I shoot this, uh, little scene where I'm, you know, every caller that answers, I'm like, Val, is that you? And I have the footage and I think like, oh, this isn't, there's like something here that's funny and interesting, but it's not an artwork. I don't know what it is. And I never could figure it out. And so it's just footage that rested aside on my hard drive. I did an exhibition called Radical Mountain Embrace the Flatness in 2020 and I, I believe in October of 2020, and uh, there are these two painted uh, sculptures, and they were, they're hard to describe, but one was, um, they're both the silhouette of a mountain climber cut out of like very thin plywood, and then intersecting with it was the silhouette of a mountain. And it was painted in such a way that when you moved around them, it was this optical effect of that the mountain would kind of become this mountain climber and then kind of collapse back into the mountain and footage and imagery is available online. But in the press release for that exhibition, I got some help from Doug cause he's a brilliant writer and he mentioned the Val project in relationship to radical mountain. And it was just listed as like related works. And I blasted the, the press release out <laughs> our mutual friend, Sarah Beadle saw this and, I guess, I, I forget exactly how it transpired, but she, I think, had mentioned it to Steven and said, oh, like, I know Val, and I'm kind of no friends of Val and his creative community. Like, would you send us this? We're kind of curious what this thing is. And I feel like Val would be 100% behind it, too, when he saw it. Well, and... Because he's in on a lot of the joke. You know oh, I mean? like, for sure he yeah, is. And yeah. I think that's where, like... I think there's kindred spirits. I have a little bit of, like, trickster. Yeah, I was just going to say, Val Kilmer to me is a trickster god. He's such a trickster. Yeah. And so, uh, basically, Sarah emailed me being like, send us a link. Like, we want to see this. And I I was so panicked. I thought, oh, my God. Like <laughs> They're going to sue me. <laughs> well, and, and that, like, oh, this thing's like, this is this is a piece of crap that I made, like, years ago. And so... With old footage combined with some new footage, I edited together mm. something that was like presentable. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not like I, I'm. I'm actually reworking it now. Mm. Um, but it's called Waiting for Val, and it's about just this like endless absurd hunt for for Val and trying to recruit him. And I sent it to them, and essentially I got connected with, you know, Stephen Meyer yeah, and and great and you know individuals at Hellmel Studios, which is. Basically, Val created a studio that's kind of like a creative incubator. Mm -hmm. And I know that the pandemic somewhat disrupted their activities, mm -hmm. but they've worked with artists and 
uh, local kind of theater groups mm-hmm. and have a lot of stuff with kids, which is nice. Yeah, and it really have been this kind of community creative anchor, which mm-hmm. has been really incredible. And I've had the privilege to attend some of their events and get to know everybody. Who everybody's been so nice and They're amazing. Great. They're great over there. And so, when planning for Desert Lighthouse Five, my exhibition came up. There was going to be a Dutch artist of note in the back room. And I think he got too busy or this or that, but then um, all of a sudden we we had an opening in the back room. And I thought, like we were kind of, me and the gallerist Carl Berg, who I've worked with uh, for a number of years, we're having a conversation of like, you know, what would be interesting back here? Should we try this Los Angeles artist? Should we try like this European artist? And I said, well, Carl, like this might sound insane, but what do you think about Val Kilmer? He has these really unusual and interesting abstract works. Would you be open to that? And Carl was very excited. And so we, we all got to meet at, at Hellmel, uh, Val Studio, and look over these works. And for the viewer, I refer to the works as portals. because They're beautiful. I, they're, I really like that show. They're incredible. They're um, Predominantly, they're like one foot by two foot, so one foot wide by two foot tall, and they're abstract paintings. And generally they all kind of have these um, kind of orb splatter formations in the center. And then they're, um, they're made out of a mix of materials, often creating like conflicting chemical responses. So um, very strange kind of alchemical uh, effects. And then they're sealed in resin, which gives them a photographic quality. And anyway, um, you know, Val was excited about it. And, you know, we thought it was uh, kind of a unique pairing in which the lighthouse is kind of existential, but conceptual and architectural. And Val seemed to kind of have this, uh, I don't know, like very different quality very much like kind of chemical organic and but like also had a very root chakra grounding quality exactly and so i don't know they there was like it, there was a little bit of opposing forces but then I one, don't know, one yours being penetrative his being receptive yeah there's a lot going they definitely speak to each other for sure yeah and i thought this would be a could be a very interesting pairing so uh and the response, I was very happy. Like the the response to the shows were incredible. Val's show looked beautiful, and I felt motivated after the ex- exhibitions. Is that what I had presented to Val and his studio as in the form of this "Waiting for Val" video piece? I don't feel like it it rose to the occasion of like an art film, but I am expanding it and reworking it, and there there will be a a, a true completed video piece waiting for Val hopefully by the end of the year. I love it. That's so great. So that's the story of how it all came together. I love it. And for listeners, I did an exhibition recently um, in 2022 called Desert Lighthouse 5. And the reason it's titled Desert Lighthouse 5 is because it was on the fifth anniversary of the first illumination of the lighthouse. And Paired with that exhibition was um, 
an exhibition called VPAC, Plain Air Views of the Desert Lighthouse. VPAC is a plain air painting group based in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. And it consists of a lot of well-known and, and some lesser known artists. And they visited the lighthouse and created artworks responding to it. And that experience alone was incredible yeah. because... I think my favorite was the one made out of rocks. I really like. Oh, that, that was there's a box <laughs> mounted on the wall. So it was, imagine a cardboard box, a brown cardboard box with the top cut off of it, glued to the wall with rocks that were sourced from the lighthouse location, and it created kind of the shape of the lighthouse. I loved it. Although it, was, it kind of looked like this primitive phallus. Yeah. And that's why I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so with the lighthouse when it was completed in 2017 it was this quite beautiful experience there's only a couple really difficult moments the permitting was emotionally quite difficult because you your your dream and your vision is subject to external forces that have no relationship essentially to contemporary art um once i survived that Hmm. making it was quite incredibly pleasurable with the exception of there was a minor accident. Uh, Fortunately, no one was hurt, but it was captured on film. Someone could have been killed. Um, And that was super stressful to watch. It was, it was a a very difficult moment. Someone actually left their job over it. They weren't fired. They voluntarily said, I I don't want to do steel work anymore. It was, it was one of the steel workers that we were collaborating with. And beyond that, um, it was a, it was a really beautiful moment in my life that I cherish. And there was an aspect of that, which was the excitement of unveiling the lighthouse and what the response would be. And when I, previously we were talking about um, people having religious responses, um, sometimes conspiratorial responses that you mentioned from this documentary that was in the exhibit one of the responses was from the contemporary art world which was essentially absolute silence and i had been in the art world for about 15 years not i don't have a big name um i i'm i'm much more like on the emerging front um even now I kind of still like I might be like younger established but I still knew enough people that I was quite shocked by the non-response because I felt like this not only picks up the discourse of land art in which Mocha at the time had recently done a huge survey of land art it's like it's not as if it's a dead conversation and so I was like very, I, I don't, I don't want to say distraught, but I was like quite surprised, and it it was a huge emotional blow that you you manifest this massive undertaking, and it's only been in subsequent years that people have responded. The locals responded immediately. Some of them thought a UFO had landed on that inaugural lighting, and. Uh, even though they were aware of you building it even though they were aware a couple uh, very inebriated 
locals drove up the hill, which was a whole other thing. And they talked about how everyone in the local bar, which apparently they could see it quite easily from um, their location, were all convinced this must be some kind of UFO thing. And that the two individuals were quite proud that they weren't afraid of the UFO and they that they came up there. Um, and then there were other conspiracies about it being a military installation, which I think perpetuate to this day. And even Fort Irwin on their website mentioned the lighthouse as like a recreation opportunity for the soldiers nearby. Um, and Fort Ir- Irwin, so the lighthouse is located in between Edwards Air Force Base and Fort Irwin. So for context, there's a lot of militarized activity in this region of the desert. Similarly, uh, also around Joshua Tree with the 29 Palms base. So there's just cause for people wondering. Also, you could have been abducted in that drive home and 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 (laughs) implanted with the idea and now you've built it. There it is. Like uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which it's it's entirely possible. So over time, you know, about a year and a half later, the memorial, which really changed my perspective because I kind of felt like the lighthouse had failed to like achieve kind of like it's this point in connection in the landscape, but then it didn't become this cultural point of connection. And that the project kind of didn't seem to resonate. and But that changed with the memorial where I thought, okay, well, this is way more important than the art world. Uh, uh, as far as connecting with people on that level. Hmm. And then in time with this recent exhibition and these artists responding to the lighthouse, I felt like, okay, something's happening here where... There, it, it, it's it's achieving something that I'd hoped it would at some point in time, but then it just took a lot longer and was so much better than I ever imagined. And so I've like seeing the other artists work, which some of them were really wacky. There was the the rocks in the box, mm-hmm. and some of them kind of had like these kind of UFOs, or one person painted these lizards kind of licking the lighthouse, mm-hmm. and. I just, I never thought I would, at that stage in time, that I'd ever be in a room with all these beautiful artworks responding to what I had done. And so I felt like there was some incredible redemption or or some kind of form of like, wow, how am I this fortunate to have done something that then has created a kind of moment of community and response and... And the fact that it came to creation because of a lo- um, immense loneliness you were feeling, yep. and now it's proving to show you how you're not alone at all. Yep. You're connected more than you will ever imagine. Well, d- that's absolutely true. And one thing that is interesting is my relationship to landscape has changed quite significantly in the process of making the lighthouse and maintaining it, which is a whole other... Thing. Oh, I'm sure, and it's solar operated. <laughs> it's solar. It's off grid solar operated, and it's. Uh, is it timer so that it comes on? Yeah. Is it always on? Okay. It's timer, so it's uh, essentially autonomous. Although 
the elements out there are so intense. Often it'll get close to 120 degrees in the summer, like peak summer, and then obviously freezing temperatures in the winter. And so... It's like my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of Los Angeles weather uh, at times. Uh, It's due for a big overhaul, which um, the wind will tear off siding. I've engineered a new method for attaching the siding. It's, It's very difficult to have a structure maintain itself. And just the UV of the sun is really profound out there. And so what's kind of underway is hopefully a full renovation where the structure is stripped of its old siding, painted, and then fresh siding with a, a newly minted observation deck. Um, and then I would, I'm would i working to organize a bus trip from Los Angeles out to the lighthouse because although it's only about an hour and 50 minutes from downtown Los Angeles, it's somewhat intimidating, I find, for people to go, okay, well, you're asking me to go... Take a left at the tumbleweed. <laughs> exactly. And and then they get a little bit more concerned when they hear about, like, oh, it's in a ghost town. Yeah, full of meth heads. Full of meth heads, which, you know, they did try to break into the lighthouse, and I have a, a much more heightened sense of awareness when I'm out there mm. post that happening. Um, and But this will be an opportunity, hopefully, for people to feel disarmed, have a fun journey, and get to experience the lighthouse at sunset. And Was that the sleepover that Brad was talking about, or is that something different? That's, yeah. Uh, it won't be a full sleepover. We'll get people back to L.A., uh, you know, well in time for them to get home for bed. But it... it Please let me know. That sounds like 100%, a wonderful yeah. time. And it should be... so. One thing that was really beautiful, so I had what I called the launch event, which is the inaugural lighting. And I think about 40, maybe 45 people attended, which is somewhat significant given you're in the middle of nowhere. And there was something very special about a group of people congregating around this structure that prior to sunset, the lighthouse lights up and you have no idea that it's illuminated. And then as the sky gets darker, you start to realize like, oh, the lighthouse is actually not getting darker. And then through sunset, every, the, the, the whole landscape gets dark and then the lighthouse gets brighter. And it's a really subtle experience that is quite unique. And when you're out there, often you're not necessarily thinking about your email. You're not thinking about the errands you have yeah. to run. No internet service anyway, I'm sure. Exactly. And so you're a little bit more tuned into you're present yeah you're present the wind the smell of the dust are you going to be on that other hill where you can watch it or are you going to be at its base at its base yeah i think um it just so people can kind of be up mm-hmm. close and that will be a rare opportunity in which the lighthouse will be open for visitors you can walk up to the top yeah because just for security and stuff and liability mm. it's something that people can come visit and view but people, unless they're kind of with me or someone I designate, they're not allowed to enter it. And it is an aesthetic experience, external, that that's, that's the artwork for me. And it's a little bit less, although I like the, like the internal uh, world inside of the lighthouse, that, that's not kind of the, necessarily the intended. That's a workout, too, walking to the top. Well, it's climbing. 
it's all ladders. Oh, it's laddering. Yeah, and it's it's sta- it's staggered ladders for safety, but you, it's graded floor. So when you're at the top, you can look oh. down and see. <laughs> oh my god. So, so that's kind of the latest with the lighthouse, and I I'm I don't know that I'm going to talk in depth because this project's less fully formed, but out on that journey in which I had the vision. Uh, I had another experience and it's associated with another project that I'm going to be starting shortly called Radical Mountain. And it's about, essentially about an undiscovered mountain. Uh, Undiscovered mountain with no topography, completely flat. And so it's a little bit about science fiction, it's a little bit about belief, and where the lighthouse is about location Radical Mountains about absence. And so I kind of see them as somewhat... Partners? Yeah, like shadows of each other. Mm. And I'm quite excited about Ooh, that. That sounds like you yeah. have to keep me posted on that. Yeah. Is the documentary out for people to see? The documentary is not. I've been passing around links for people. Uh, so what had happened is my friend who said, let's make... I'll make a film if you make The Lighthouse. Well... He, in, in the middle of the lighthouse being made, he started having a little bit of success in which he actually had to step away. He, had to, he said, I can't, I can't do this film for free when there's like a paying job. And he's gone on to have some uh, pretty exciting success directing a big film for Amazon. And I, I believe he's been directing uh, shows for Netflix and stuff. And Can we say his name? Or? Yeah, Matt Sobel. And uh, I think the name of the Amazon film was Goodnight Mommy or Goodbye Mommy. It's a, it's a remake of, I believe, a Swedish kind of thriller film. And uh, Emma Watts was the star. And, and he did a really exciting film called Take Me to the River for Sundance uh, Film Festival in, I believe, 2015. And I'll see him on Monday, so... And we, we may circle back around to complete this documentary, but what had happened is he had to step away. And I essentially said, don't worry, I'll keep filming. And so I just kept the cameras rolling and documented as much as I could with the hope that he would return or another filmmaker would return and be able to use the footage. Eventually, I was invited in 2018 to present some version of the footage for a screening with a, a fellow artist, Marnie Weber. And I've been connected to Marnie Weber. Um, I've helped edit her art films, and we play in bands together. And, and so I put together a 35-minute film. And what was odd is that it was all, I shot it as if someone else were shooting it. So it's not vlog style. It's not like shot as if it were autobiographical. Yet I ended up making a 35 minute short documentary about myself. So that was a very weird process, but that's what you saw. Yeah. Can, will they be able to see it? The listeners? Yes, we'll provide a link. Oh, wonderful. And uh, there's a lot more footage and there's gonna be new stuff filmed. Uh, I want to film prayer ceremonies with the church. I want to film some of the more conspiratorial UFO, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, enthusiasts Mm -hmm. response. 
um, I want to film the lighthouse once it's been renovated uh, again and and then kind of get into the response because so the documentary covers it's called Desert Lighthouse a point of origin and it's about the genesis of the idea and the creation of the lighthouse up until it's illuminated. Mm-hmm. It's a great film. I Thank watched you. the whole thing, which I don't think I've ever done at an art, at an art show. Oh, yeah. You know, because you watch like 10 minutes and you wander well, off. And the Often art films at art exhibitions, are it's the worst film experience ever. Because it's hard to hear. The acoustics are yeah. terrible in yeah. art galleries. And often seating's not provided which i did not provide seating right we said yeah but yeah. we we hung out and we watched it and it was really something oh thank you yeah i mean that's why i was like i have to interview this guy well i appreciate that so uh there's two additional parts planned one about the response to the lighthouse once it existed and and then uh and then a final part uh, that will be made in a number of years about its legacy of like how did it find its way into discourse or not and where does it stand at like the 10 year mark i'm gonna be interested in a hundred years when we're all dead and there's a cult that's worships at the foot of it well there's because there's no electricity anywhere in the world and so this one lighthouse remains remains illuminated <laughs> well hopefully that we can get the materials to uh be sustainable enough but so I've largely kept that documentary private with the hopes of, all right, well, it'll be expanded mm. into feature length and then might find its way to like a streamer or, or some kind of... I feel like Sundance would love that thing. <laughs> I should probably... I've never tried to submit it, so... You should. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do that. And, and so... But I'll provide a link. So great because I, yeah. I put links on the HeyHumanPodcast.com's website. Fantastic. Yeah, and it makes life easier for everyone. To, and tell them how else to find you. You can find me at DesertLighthouse.org, and there's a Wikipedia page for the lighthouse. And uh, one thing that's being investigated is there's a website called StargateHinkley.com that I don't know if this is like a prank site, but it claims that the lighthouse is like a UFO kind of interface or something. It's it's like it's kind of like QAnon, but I'm It's the same people as Birds Aren't Real, maybe. <laughs> pretty much. I I I'm not familiar with Birds Aren't oh, Real, but yeah. I imagine it's like a web. It's like a prankster. Okay. It's a yeah. They so, they very uh they're they're very uh, what's the word? Stoic about it. Oh. It's it's very dry humor. Are you familiar with the Yes Men? I don't think so. Oh my God! There's two. They have two films. You should absolutely okay. see. I think the first film is titled The Yes Men. Okay. And there's a genre of art called infiltration art, and it comes out of kind of prankster discourse. And uh, I don't know that these individuals, and I'm forgetting their names, so I apologize. Uh, they, I don't know that they kind of position themselves as artists, more the more social activists. Mm. But they'll do really wild things like they'll create, they'll get a, a website where it's like a slight misspelling of a company's name. And then, but it's the exact replica of the website. And they'll get inter- invited by like the BBC to give an interview. And they'll go and give an interview and say, here at Dow Chemical Company, we've realized 
the environmental impact and the negative effects that it's had and we're going to donate like 12 billion dollars over the next five years and it'll like affect stock prices and stuff and it's these guys have the like i mean i don't know how they do it of their confidence and ability to show up and so that's what i'm assuming but they're hopefully this stargate hinkley so desertlighthouse.org <laughs> if you want some fringe stuff stargatehinkley.com uh the wikipedia page has a few links to news articles and and then i have a personal portfolio at danielhawkins.la and that you can see more artwork that i've made uh and you'll see a bunch of stuff about the lighthouse and and some of my other projects that's really great daniel thank you for coming over and for telling me this incredible story of course thank you susan for having me and yeah. i'm so glad we met and me too yeah. and i can't wait to see what comes next I will definitely keep you abreast, and likewise. Yeah, it's uh, it was it's really an astonishing project. The I I can't really describe it well. It's one of those things where you really absolutely have to see it. If you go to desertlighthouse.org, there's enough imagery that I feel like people should have an impression, and then if they go out to visit the lighthouse, which surprisingly, if you go to Google Maps and type desert lighthouse it will show you and the lighthouse is a little bit in less than pristine condition right now and hence the renovations that are in Im imminent um but it's still an experience it's still everyone that goes out there really has a, a profound experience and one thing that i was very grateful for is a really well-respected artist jeffrey valence um, who has a long history here in Los Angeles, he was invited to pick one exhibition or artwork that he experienced in 2022 for uh, Art Forum's Best of Issue, and he selected the Desert Lighthouse. And that was, uh, uh, for context for kind of non-art world people, Art Forum is kind of the preeminent publication it's a print magazine and website it's a really nice print magazine very nice and it's almost like a book yeah and it's like it's very like art world they're insider actually, i feel like they're collect i've collected a bunch of they, them. people I think do they're collectible yeah, yeah. They, like and people really do and i when i was young like i mean i'm still young but when i was very young i had fantasies of oh you know wouldn't that be cool and i'd long given up on that and so um that's one other spot that you might bump into a link online if you Google the Desert Lighthouse. Sometimes we have to we hold so tightly to a dream that we smother it before it can yep. come to fruition. So when you do let go and you just work on your work, yep. it allows it to get out into the universe and to do its thing. Well, dreams and relationships, I find yeah, that too. that if the tighter you hold on, the yeah. more it suffocates and um so yeah. it's nice to kind of let go and then something kind of flourishes. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. Bye.